Welcome back to Chat with the Designers, a weekly technical discussion forum for amateur radio homebrewers and experimenters, with your hosts, George N2APB and Joe N2CX. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Welcome to Chat with the Designers. This is your live, online, interactive, weekly magazine for homebrewers, QRPers, and ham radio operators on a worldwide basis. This is your co-host, George N2APB, along with the other co-host, Joe N2CX. And uh, tonight we're going to be presenting a topic that's uh, hopefully pretty near and dear to everybody's hearts, and it's called Project building tips, home brewing project building techniques. What we've done is collected a really good assortment. In fact, far many than far more than we can probably cover, and far more than I was able to get photos for onto our whiteboard uh, this evening. But uh, a, a whole bunch of different tips and techniques that uh, that Joe and I and many of you have exercised and used in the past for putting together projects and some of the tools and the approaches for using some of the components, uh, some of the cam uh, cabling and the wiring, and little tips along the way. Now, some of this might be kind of old hat to some of you. Some of it, and this is where we, we think the golden gems are, if you haven't thought about approaching um, a problem this way, whether it's mounting a circuit board, making test points available, or whatever, we, we're hoping that this is going to be a really special night for you because it'll be like a, a light bulb turning on. And that's the way it was, I think, when most of us started off and we were able to uh, kind of get, get the hang of things and understand what, uh, you know, what, what's, what's up on the, on the homebrewing bench and how to best put our projects together. So as we uh, start focusing on the presentation, let's get down to it. Again, be sure to... Go to the website, what we call our whiteboard. It has all the material in there. We'll be following an outline plus tons of photos. And if you're listening along on the podcast, after the presentation uh, is live real time here, it'll be a really nice reference to go back and hopefully you'll get a chance to kind of improve your own techniques. Along the way, let me say right out right here, Joe and I would really, really like to have your input and feedback right during the presentation. This is not meant to be a monologue or a, a dialogue uh, just between Joe and me. We really hope to get people's involvement in questions or other approaches that you might happen to have uh, tried successfully on your homebrewing adventures. We all would like to hear about them. Uh, by definition, this is the collection that Joe and I have either used um, ourselves or heard about on the various lists along the way and what we found to be the best approaches for some of them, uh, the techniques that are described. This is not to say that we know every technique or what we're describing here, of course, is the better technique. Um, every technique has its application, its special use, its conditions for use, and a lot of it, quite frankly, depends on what you have in your junk box. So um, if you happen to have certain techniques some ways that you found successful along the way. We would love to have you kind of uh, tap your mic button, get our attention, and uh, we'll be glad to, to offer the mic over to you for a, a minute or so just to kind of share your experience. Okay, Joe, do you want to kind of get into it as far as, uh, you know, leading us off this evening? 
Certainly. Thank you, George. Thank you very much. Good evening to all. Yeah, um, many of us build things uh, for various uh, various reasons. Some of us build kits. Some of us like to uh, go from scratch. And uh, particularly, uh, a lot of what I do is not uh, huge projects, but I'll build a little circuit or I'll build uh, a collection of small circuits just to try out an idea. So many of the things we'll be talking about tonight are uh, in that along that line where um, you can build, you know, you can build a filter. Actually, the first picture on the whiteboard is a uh, looks to be a multi-section filter. Um, you can build little amplifiers, whatever, to check them out very quickly before you build them in uh, uh, more permanent fashion, or uh, as some have done. Uh, one um, very famous guy, uh, K8IQI, uh, Jim Corchy, has done a number of projects where uh, he builds a whole whole radio, um, Manhattan style, um, and and does a great job at uh, Wes Hayward, W7ZOI, use a, a, a construction technique we'll talk about a little later called ugly style, where he's built little transceivers, all... Um, with components hacked together. So we're going to be talking about some of those things. The very first thing, uh, uh, it kind of comes naturally, but many of us don't do it. Uh, what is it you want, actually want to build? What do you want to accomplish? Do you want to just build a uh, small amplifier, build a small filter? Um, do you want to build a whole radio? Um, you have to have a clear idea of what you're going to do before you get started. Otherwise, you waste a lot of time uh, uh, redoing things, uh, taking the wrong approach, trying to put uh, 10 pounds of manure in a uh, five-pound bag, uh, something like that. So it's it's best to set a project goal before you begin. Uh, and many of us uh, f use a copper-clad board um, as a base for our prototypes and for some of the larger projects. It's very handy. A uh, board that is... Um, uh, 16th inch board, a glass epoxy board is very good. It has a either generally a one ounce or a two ounce copper, uh, which is just the amount of copper per square area on there. And uh, you can solder to it very nicely and you can put little standoffs on there for components. It makes a good sturdy base. And um, the glass epoxy board has the property that it can withstand the heat. If you use something like uh, uh, the phenolic board underneath, it's it's going to crack and it's going to break from the heat. So you need to good, use a good quality. Paper epoxy, which some of us are able to get at times, also works. It's not quite as rugged. But using a copper-clad base like this and being able to uh, solder grounds, particularly right on the surface, uh, and with short leads and having a nice ground plane gives a very, very good uh, uh, ground very good low uh, low impedance, low inductance connection for grounding components. Um, I have built components, uh, I've built projects uh, with this sort of construction up uh, well into VHF and even uh, UHF up to um, uh, 450 megahertz. So it's, it's a good way to go, a very excellent way to go. Relatively inexpensive. Uh, you, you can note on that first picture, there's some little pads. There are isolated pads that are um, 
where the the actual components are interconnected connected together they're kind of like the lands on a surface board they're on a printed circuit board we make little pads little uh, dots of printed circuit material um, that are used for this that are glued in place we'll talk about that a little bit later there are a couple ways of doing it um, one way is to use a hand punch there's a hand punch shown here which i believe is a i'm not sure whether it's a whitney roper or if it's one of the uh, uh, harbor freight or uh, northern hydraulics hand punches but they have various sized dies and you can punch out little dots of the printed circuit board material generally you use something like uh, 3 16 or quarter inch dot um, of the material and uh, once that's glued to the surface, you can solder to it and it'll stay put. Give you a, a place to interconnect components. Um, you can use also use tin snips if you want. Well, one of the pictures shows the, uh, the, the hand punch being held in a vise, which is a very good idea. If you're going to do a number of these darn things, your hands get very tired holding on to the punch and punching. So... Uh, to relieve the pressure on your hands, you can mount the, uh, you can temporarily hold the punch in a vise uh, to take the pressure off your hands. Um, another method, uh, if you don't want round pads, well, a couple, couple methods to do square pads, and it doesn't matter whether they're square or round. To do square pads, you can use tin snips, cut a thin strip, say 13th, 13th inch, 3 16th inch wide, and uh, then cut that up into rectangular pads. Or um, Chip Corchy, who is a perfectionist, does, uh, does things a, a little different way. He uses a nibbler. Um, those of you who are familiar with nibblers, they, use it, they used to make uh, um, holes in uh, chassis for mounting larger components. And uh, when you press the handle on a nibbler there, what it gives you is a, uh, a little rectangular wedge that's about a quarter inch long and about a sixteenth inch wide. Uh, so it's a very small pad. And Jim Corchy, with all his patience, likes those teeny tiny pads. Unfortunately for somebody ham-handed like me, they're a little too, uh, little too small. The method to hold the pads on, as I mentioned, is to use some sort of glue. The best way is to use... Uh, uh, super glue, a cyanoacrylate adhesive to hold the pads. You put a drop of that on the, on the base uh, board and then glue the pad on, just hold it in place for a couple of seconds and it'll be held in place. Um, super glue has a very, very high tensile strength. It can take compression or pulling on it um, very well. It has very little shear strength, so you can't hit it from the side, but it, it stands up to temperature even. Um, if you have a clean, uh, clean printed, printed circuit board, uh, copper surface, there's a picture of um, Gorilla Super Glue, which is a good, uh, good solid brand. There are other super glues. Um, there's some that are gels, some that are liquid, and uh, come in various, uh, uh, various forms. But um, they're all the basic material, and uh, do a good job for holding down. Uh, pads on uh, on what's called Manhattan-style uh, building. Now, we don't have a good illustration of it. I'll sh we will a little bit later, but it's come. This uh, style of construction has been come come to be known as 
Manhattan-style construction. I think Kim Jim Corchi is the uh, the guy who popularized that name, because if you look at it from the side, uh, it looks like uh, a uh, city scene with uh, tall buildings, the components uh, standing up. It looks like buildings uh, with the interconnection of the all the components being like streets. So it's come to be known as uh, Manhattan-style construction. One of the important things to, um, to keep in mind when uh, you're putting these pads on a board is um, uh, to be sure that the board is clean before you begin. Um, you can use a piece of Scotch-Brite and some water. Scotch-Brite is a, um, it's a brand name, but it's a, it's a, a, a plastic scrubby pad and you use that without soap um, in a little bit of water perhaps uh, just to get a nice a smooth surface free of bumps and free of uh, copper oxide uh, the copper oxide will inhibit um, um, soldering and you also want to get all the uh, finger oil off there fingerprints whatever else so it's good to use some sort of solvent to clean that off a uh, good solvent is a high um, high concentration rubbing alcohol. Some of the ones in the drugstores are like 60-70% alcohol. Uh, and they have additives also, which are not good. If you want uh, the ultimate, the 95% uh, uh, pure alcohol to really clean this finger oil off the surface, uh, heat fuel additive is 95% alcohol. You can get that at any automotive store, even uh, Walmart. So that's very important. And as you're constructing, don't don't touch the board. Um, keep a pad of um, either cloth or paper towel under your hand so that uh, you, don't, you don't add fingerprints to the board, finger oils, or oxidize the board uh, so that you'll get good adhesion good long-term adhesion. At this uh, point, I think I'll take a break and uh, ask if there are any questions. Okay, no questions. Um, let me turn it back over to George and let him pick up. Thank you, Joe. And again, please, if anybody has some uh, points that they want to bring up, uh, ask a question. That's the way we get a good interactive thing going here. Really appreciate everybody's questions along the way. So don't feel shy. I was speaking with somebody the other day offline, of course, and they were saying, yeah, I feel, sometimes I feel so dumb. I don't want to ask a question. I just want to sit back and learn from you guys. I think the value of this kind of a session comes from the interactive nature. Um, otherwise, it might just end up being Joe and me here online live, and it gets less exciting to do that. Okay, somebody has a question. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is, this is Dave. Um, I've used a uh, dental uh, tool, uh, which I mount in a Dremel tool, and uh, also I've used that uh, island cutter uh, wheel, which we bought many years ago, uh, to make uh, pads and uh, just etch the uh, uh, copper with the uh, island pad. And I've uh, using that combination, uh, uh, which is not pretty, but it does work out well. The only other thing I do, George, is I check the pads for continuity uh, because uh, sometimes you get a little bit of copper there and it uh, creates a short. 
but it seems to work out all right for me. Dave, that's a great, great reminder, and thanks for doing that. Um, what Dave is referring to is what we called uh, a number of years ago when we introduced the concept uh, in the New Jersey QRP. We call it the NJQ, um, NJQRP Island Cutter or Island Pad Cutter or something like that. And what it is, it's, it's an end mill, a diamond-tipped end mill that has a 5 millimeter diameter. A little Think of it as a little circular saw that you would mount into your, uh, it's a bit, you would mount it into your drill press and you drop it down and very carefully drill down through the copper uh, and it creates a, an island, a circular island that is isolated from the rest of the copper uh, uh, ground plane, what is normally the ground plane. And uh, Joe has just put a, uh, a link for the island pad cutter in our text area so you can go to that link uh, uh, on the New Jersey QRP website. George? Yep. Yeah, I also want to point out uh, that that web that uh, page just shows the the pad cutter drawing and a picture uh, of it in a drill press. But there is a link there to download a manual, which uh, I believe was illustrated by NA5N. It's a pretty good manual on how to use uh, this pad cutter to uh, to make the isolated pads. Ah, good point. Good point, and that's a great uh, tip, Joe. We have that manual online. Further online, I think, is something called the Island, the Islander Amplifier. I'll put all of these onto the website, so we'll have an enhanced. And I'll fill in some more pictures too when we're um, when we're done here. But uh, if you can go back to it, you'll see um, a link for the Islander Amplifier. Again, working with Jim Corchi, K8IQI, um, he developed a little test amplifier. It's an audio amplifier, like a two-stage audio amplifier, I believe, transistors. <clears throat> and uh, ideally suited for building Manhattan style um, with the Manhattan style techniques that we're talking about here. Now coming back to what Dave had mentioned, um, this Islander pad cutter is really really good and I wanted to illustrate um, its use in, in, in a higher level way. Um, and by the way we're spending so much time on, the, on this Manhattan style construction technique because it's very popular, it's very successful for quickly getting a good circuit together it can look stunning if you look at some of the other uh, photos on the web page, especially those that I put on there from uh, Jim Corchy's work. Uh, the 2N240 is a really good example of, of that. Um, the The technique that we use, and I'll, even I'll have it in a photo that I'm, I have a project underway here too, on this page, I have it pictured, whereby uh, you normally kind of, what I normally do is sketch out the circuit physically you know, I draw a resistor and a capacitor and little islands, the circles and dots, and I kind of lay it out in one-to-one -one mapping so I know exactly what it's going to look like when I build it. It doesn't often end up like that, but that's the way I start off. So I had leave enough room and I get the, I cut the circuit board big enough to begin with and all of that. Um, but when you do lay it out that way, it's a really clever technique, clever, uh, very useful technique, is to paste that um, or tape that <clears throat> pencil drawing that you've done on a piece of paper right over top the copper clad the full copper clad board and then either cut out uh, the component of the, the the circles where the pads are going to go so you know exactly where you want to glue down the your manhattan pads or using the technique that dave said and i've used this before and i, I still do 
is I, I put that Islander bit into the drill press and I, with the, uh, the copper clad and a piece of paper taped over it, I go down and I drill into the copper right through the paper at each of the Manhattan pad locations. Then when I take off, and you don't even have to take off the paper, but sometimes, oftentimes I take off the paper and then follow the paper as a guide to solder my resistors and capacitors and transistors there to the circuit, thus making a really good rendition of the circuit that I had indeed sketched out. It, uh, it works out really well before, um, before putting your project together. And as I said, uh, the, the neater it is to start off with, the easier it is to get it working. But oftentimes with all the changes, you don't often end up with uh, exactly as neat as you started. Um, to answer some of the questions we had, uh, the, um, the hand punch is indeed from Harbor Freight. Joe and I are Harbor Freight guys, and I've got now the punch that you see there is Harbor Freight. The drill press, uh, the, the device, sorry, the, the device that holds the hand punch is Harbor Freight. Um, the nibbler is Harbor Freight. And um, later on, you'll see some other things that are from Harbor Freight. It's a really good source for tools, if uh, you haven't heard us say that before. Um, um, I think, uh, okay, let, let's move on. And um, uh, the pictures are pretty self-explanatory. The components are, are nice and easily accessible. If you mount them upward or mount them with sufficient uh, standoff to the board, and you can easily get your scope probe, your DVM uh, onto the points for, for testing. But it's essential to keep the board clean for so the uh, the pads are able to stick with the super glue that you use. The, the Gorilla super glue that I pictured there, I've had particularly good luck with. And uh, it seems to last forever, contrary to or uh, different from other super glues that kind of like once I open up the tip and use it, you know, within a month, the uh, the tube of glue is all hardened and not, I'm not able to use it again. This Gorilla glue has been with me for a long time, so it's just got a good sealing mechanism for the cap. Now, coming down to the, uh, the design for testability section. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. And I neglected to put a photo on there and I was trying to do it while Joe was speaking. I just didn't have enough time. Um, uh, it was going to be a photo that actually pointed out test points that uh, are built, are usually built into a circuit. Um, the plan ahead part, Joe's mentioned somewhat, and you can see in the illustration there, I don't even know what circuit that is, but the, um, the components and sections are pretty clearly identified or clearly um, obvious, um, especially to the designer, but it's much easier to do it if it's nice and neat. And this is illustrated too in the 2N240 transceiver from Jim Corchi that we have pictured here because the modular sections are, are very clearly corresponding to the documentation and it makes it be a breeze for going in and measuring things along the way. As far as measuring things, um, what we normally do is put in easily accessible test points such that we can quickly get to all of the different uh, important parts of the design. Certainly the, 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 the voltage bus and, and even having a convenient ground clip. It's pretty easy to get to ground on these copper clad uh, Manhattan style projects. Um, but it is uh, pretty helpful to put a solder on a little coil of wire, a little stiff piece of wire perhaps sticking off to the side that you can conveniently clip on the ground lead of your DVM, the ground lead of your uh, scope probe, and if you put those 
in various locations you'll have the ground for your probe located pretty close to the signal that you're trying to measure which lends itself toward a nice clean measurement. You don't have to worry too much about uh, um, ground loop noise if you get the grounds close to the signals that you're measuring. Something that maybe we didn't, or something that's obvious. The double-sided copper clad board has two sides. Duh. And um, sometimes we forget, I forget, to ground the bottom side because I work all on the top side usually. <clears throat> and if I'm able to ground the bottom side, it just adds a little bit more. At times it might add a little bit more shielding or um, uh, protection of, uh, for the signals that are that are being routed along along the circuit, especially if portions of the circuit are are um, over uncovered areas. And speaking of which, I was going to mention this when Joe was talking that uh, sometimes you want to have an area underneath the component clear of any copper. Now, uh, a good example might be uh, uh, when you mount a toroid. Uh, sometimes it, people mount toroids flat down right on top and glue them to the copper clad surface. And it is not always necessarily the best thing to do because the copper ground or other uh, signals that might be going through that area of the copper are, might affect um, the cue of the, of the, uh, of the toroid or just affect its performance. So what I normally do is I cut a square using my exacto um, knife. I cut a square maybe one inch by one inch and that isolates the copper that's underneath the toroid. Further, I actually peel off that copper and I do that by heating it up with a, you know, one of the big Weller soldering uh, guns um, that gets up to uh, high wattage and you just put a lot of solder on there, start one corner, let it get really hot, and then you can take your needle nose pliers and pull up, very slowly pull up while you heat the, uh, the area of the copper that's separating from the fiberglass uh, or the phenolic uh, substrate, and you can ultimately take the copper off of that area. I have a project or a photo later on that I'll show you um, with that technique, but while I'm remembering it, that's, that's uh, kind of useful. So, Putting test points also in critical areas like uh, feedback loops or inputs and outputs from your microcontroller are very handy such that you can, at a moment, with your scope or DVM, determine the state of your circuit to see if it's active, if it's working, if the control voltage is within a certain range, but that's that's easily achievable with, uh, uh, with the test points. Um, power supply. Alternate power supplies. I'm going to mention the first item, and then, then Joe's one of Joe's favorite topics is the uh, is the portable cells and the different forms of the cells. And I'll turn it over to him for that. But the first uh, the picture that you see under the alternate power supplies is um, a current limited power supply that I use standard on my bench. Like it seems forever. I use it all the time, and it's a Kiki a Kikusui. <laughs> I got it at a ham fest. It was like 80 bucks, I think. Uh, Joe pointed me over to it when we were wandering around one time. One of the best, one of the best investments that I've made. And it's a current limited uh, power supply. It goes up to 2 amperes, I think. Um, oh, there it is at 1.2 amps, 0 to 32 volts. And it, you can meter, um, I can meter the voltage or I can meter the current in order to see what, uh, 
what uh, what my circuit is drawing. Equally important with this kind of a thing is that I can limit the current to be only say 500 mils, because I might say if any if this circuit that I'm working on is going to draw more than 500 mils, there's something wrong and it's going to fry it. So what I do is I limit the current to 500 mils by shorting the red to the white, uh, the ground, you know, the, the plus to the minus on the power supply, and adjust the current limit to be 500 mils. And then if ever at 12 volts, my circuit starts drawing more than 500 mils, it, it limits it. And thus, it's, it, uh, if you set that value judiciously, you might save some components and you'll see a little red light come on your power supply that says you've, you are into an overcurrent or an overvoltage type of condition. So I can't speak highly, more highly enough about, uh, um, about having a good power supply, even in something as uh, kind of small as this, which suffices for the bench. Um, Joe, cells. Ah, uh, yes, cells. Indeed, it is one of my favorite topics. Although I have to admit, I too have a, uh, a regulated current loaded power supply that I use on the bench all the time. And uh, it, it serves as a backup uh, when I can't find a charger. I, uh, I use the current limit portion as a, as a constant current charger for batteries to charge up, um, well, uh, lead acid cells or um, some of the uh, um, nickel metal hydrides or uh, even NICADs charge them at a, a low uh, constant current source, a uh, constant current rate to uh, to bring them back to life. I often use batteries. I, I kind of like batteries, um, particularly when you've got multiple uh, things you're powering up on the bench. Uh, it can eliminate, it can lessen clutter of having cables all over the bench. And uh, quite often what I do is to use one of the battery holders. Um, there's one uh, shown Actually, the things is carbon zinc batteries. These are really uh, these Duracells, so they're they're um, alkaline uh, batteries. But uh, this particular one holds eight cells. So uh, if they're nominally one and a half volts each, it's a 12 volt power supply, and it's terminated in a uh, one of the 5.5 by 2.1 um, millimeter coaxial power plugs. So it'll plug right into a circuit. Very handy for uh, using on the bench. And uh, it's it's a tad safer than using a big honking power supply because uh, the shorts there is internal resistance in the batteries, and uh, the short circuit current is limited to uh, a couple amps. Um, when I'm I'm really concerned about a sensitive circuitry, instead of using uh, these double A cells, double A um, alkaline cells, I'll use um, some of the cheaper so-called heavy-duty cells, which are carbon zinc cells, they have a much higher uh, internal resistance so that they limit the current to only a couple hundred mils to give you um, some of the benefits of a current-limited power supply so that you don't, uh, you don't burn things up. I see Alan has said, be careful with NICAD. They have very little, very low internal resistance. Indeed, that's true. Uh, that is very true. One of the other things I'll do is to um, uh, use different battery packs. Um, there are several shown on the whiteboard here uh, with a different number of cells in so that you can pick a supply voltage of uh, three volts. Uh, if you use uh, two cells, um, if you use four cells, you get six volts. 
six L's, you get nine volts. And um, also, if you use um, NICADs or nickel metal hydrides, they're 1.2 volts per cell. So picking a uh, an appropriate holder, you get a selection of voltages to uh, to power your circuits. Very handy way of doing it. And uh, I have uh, I have several devices that use uh, 12 volts and internal uh, batteries. And uh, I have a nasty habit of letting them run down. So uh, I always have a uh, uh, one of the battery holders with a couple cells in it so that I can uh, temporarily run this uh, whatever project, whatever antenna analyzer or, or uh, meter I have, I can run it off the external batteries uh, uh, till I can charge up the cells properly. And there are several several different uh, combinations shown on the on the whiteboard. Getting back to a point that George made earlier, um, test points. There's a printed circuit board here. I'm not exactly sure what it is. It looks like it has an Arduino on it, but um, there are some circuit boards shown. There are some open pads uh, shown as test point one and test point two. This printed circuit board was specifically designed to have a couple uh, points where you can measure with a scope or a voltmeter to uh, to look at the uh, particular point in the circuit to uh, troubleshoot or to tell what's going on. Good technique. Uh, George, I was about to turn it back to you, so go ahead. <laughs> okay, Joe, thanks. Yeah, I was able to um, slip that circuit uh, photograph in uh, for those of you live here with us, um, if you refresh your browser, refresh your browser, uh, you'll see a new photo um, and a, has arrived under the making test points accessible point uh, that we're making right now. So it's right after the, uh, the different battery cells, and holders and so on. It's indeed, it's indeed a circuit, one of my circuits for another project, uh, some kind of an iris control type of project, but you'll see that um, it's, it's shown upside down, but nonetheless, it looked kind of funny if I had rotated it. The uh, test point one and test point two there, one of them is for a control loop that uh, uh, control loops are notorious for being problematic to debug and get working. So um, uh, having a signal there that represents <clears throat> the current state or the uh, the, the voltage that's on this con analog control loop is, is quite helpful to get to. Sometimes you can put a pin in there. You actually put like a you know one pin from a pin header. You extract it from a pin header and you solder it in. And then you can clip your uh, scope probe onto it pretty easily. And in this case here, I'm able to put the scope ground easily to one of the corner holes on that circuit board, which I conveniently made sure that they were grounded and uh, it, it acts nicely for that uh, that particular purpose. And then, uh, as I said there, for uh, processor state and board state and so on. Um, before we go too far away from the Manhattan pads, I wanted to mention another really nifty thing that uh, uh, Rex uh, W1REX from the main QRP, the QRP me group has, and we have a link to it down at the bottom, I'm sure, Somebody will put it onto our uh, text area here. Is a link to his uh, me pads, M E P A D S me pads. Um, check that out because it's a great collection of different um, 
uh, components or different circuits, pads, IC pads, and useful for Manhattan projects if you snip them off and you can paste them onto the board, glue them onto the board as I'll show how I actually used it uh, in, a, in a project below. So um, continuing on just a little bit and we, yeah. But while you're on the uh, Manhattan uh, construction technique, what I found very useful is uh, essentially uh, just uh, etch a blank board with the Manhattan pad structure. And by that, I mean, I'll just double side it typically. And on the uh, wiring side, uh, put a piece of uh, contact paper like with adhesive backing like you use on uh, kitchen shelves. And that will be the, uh, if you will, protection. Then I simply uh, lay a pattern on the uh, surface to be etched with uh, 3 8 inch squares uh, in the interior. And then the exterior, I just put a, uh, say, a 3 3 8 inch wide strip around the whole circumference where the, the intended use there would be, that would be like a, a voltage bus for whatever the breadboard circuit is. And then proceed to, with an X-Acto knife, just cut out a very small sliver to uh, expose the copper to uh, where, where it's going to etch out the uh, breaks between the uh, boundaries of each of the 3 8 inch uh, squares. And then proceed to etch it and uh, etch it long enough and peel off all the uh, contact paper and then use a, a continuity checker like I put a link on on uh, your text page, uh, which is very useful where you can just simply go in there and uh, with a pair of uh, continuity probe needles, just uh, visually go to a probe and you know zip around four, four spots per uh, pad and check that uh, everything was etched correctly before you you release it for, for use on your breadboarding. And I always have at least one of those available for any quick I want to start breadboarding, and, and there it is, ready to go. Usually use a five-inch square uh, blank board, and that's typically larger than any circuit I'll need. And when I get to where I'm, uh, I'm starting to use the last board, I'll, I'll put etch another one on my uh, job drawer to get ready for the next round. That's great input, Larry. Thanks an awful lot for sharing that. And um, I think there are maybe even Rex up there again in the QRP ME uh, group. They might do something similar like that to have standard boards like that that are available. And um, you can certainly do it a lot more economically yourself by etching, like you said. And that just brings to point of my, uh, brings to mind a point that uh, somebody had mentioned that we might want to cover some in future in a future session. Um, the basics of etching your own circuit board and what some of the common techniques are today and it's a really uh, um, handy thing to uh, to have under your belt if you ever need it. The last point about what you said too, uh, is, I want to underscore that because that's what Dave Ottenberg had mentioned a moment ago. Whenever we cut boards or um, etch boards or even use the island pad cutter, it's essential, absolutely essential to check with a continuity meter um, a DVM, a D, um, bolt ohmmeter of some sort to ensure that your island truly is an island. Sometimes there are little filings, copper filings that um, are almost too small to see. And if they are there, there they would cause havoc with your circuit debugging because it looks like it's isolated, but it's not, and you don't get the voltages, and it's it can be uh, kind of problematic. Um, okay, let's move along. Start to move a little bit more quickly. 
we wanted to spend some good time on the Manhattan style since it's so ubiquitous. It's so useful for everything that we're doing from big circuits to small circuits to teeny little surface mount circuits. And the flexibility that's offered to us homebrewers by this technique is just absolutely astounding. And again, um, this, this technique was popularized, popularized in the last, you know, within the last decade a lot. Um, but it originated back from ugly style construction techniques that I remember as being started by, uh, or at least you know, kind of noted and documented by Wes Hayward, W W7ZOY. And, um, I think some of the people that are that we've mentioned today, uh, Jim Corchy, K8IQI, uh, Chuck Adams, uh, K7QO, and some others just are meticulous homebrewers. Um, even one of them, uh, a fellow in our own ranks um, in the New Jersey club, John Cawthorn, uh, KE2E or something, um, is KE2S maybe, is an astounding builder for uh, uh, using this technique. And you, the work, they are works of art. Now, building circuits in sections is incredibly valuable, whether it's Manhattan style or otherwise. And you see a good representation here. This is an early, or actually, it's an early version of the 2N240 transceiver. That's a 40 meter transceiver that you're seeing there. And what Jim did, and I forgot who kind of kitted it up uh, last, but uh, what they did was they made a full size template of all, just like I had suggested before, about writing out your circuits and where they go. And a, a full-size template is available to lay on top of a copper-clad board like this. And actually, you can transfer the, uh, the components or cut down, you know, cut through it and add the pads right where they should be to have it look just about as nice as it does here. Now, this is not a great photo, and I apologize. It, there is some stunning work. And this is just the first one that I was able to put my hands on. Um, further... Uh, Jim and some others took the uh, that template, you know, with all the you know the squares and the components and all that. They actually uh, created like a stencil that gets pl uh, printed onto the copper clad, and they supplied that copper clad board with that. So, kind of think of it as a silk screen that's right on the copper, and you can put your components right alongside it. It is a heck of a good job, a heck of a fun project. And uh, I enjoyed that to no end. Uh, again, our good friend Nancy, NJ8M, uh, and I'm sorry, NJ8B, who now lives in New Jersey, is another phenomenal construction artist. And she made a 2N240 that would just absolutely knock your socks off. I got to get a photograph of that thing for the archives here. Plug boards coming down a little bit can be really helpful. And again, this is, um, this is another favorite of Joe's. Uh, not much to be said about it other than those white plug boards are, are just very, very flexible. Of course, you can put your components on and uh, wires to whatever, you know, on the voltage bus on the top, the ground bus on the bottom. Put your test points, put your, as you see there, put some um, LEDs or light bulbs in there. And it becomes a circuit that uh, is great for test and tryout. And then it can actually become a, a permanent part of the project as we did with the, uh, what's pictured as, in the temporary becomes semi-permanent photograph. That's a quickie lab. Joe and I designed that oh, a decade ago. And um, we actually built onto it that white proto board because much of the quickie labs projects were temporary, try this out, put some jumpers on it, jumper it over to the control processor and, and write your basic program to, to, to control your circuits on that white plug board. Very, very handy.
modular circuits are, are incredibly helpful. Joe is, uh, I think, kind of another expert on this. I'm going to turn it over to him to talk about that. But um, if you have standard circuits, either the schematics for them that you reuse from project to project, or even better, if you're building up things in a modular fashion, uh, such as what's shown here, I think this is like a little audio amplifier if I'm uh, of some sort, that um, you can actually take that whole module, plop it down on a, a larger piece of circuit board uh, that's containing other specialized circuits and combine them together almost as if you would uh, be connecting uh, Lincoln logs together. Uh, Joe, other modular circuit uh, uh, comments? Certainly, yeah, it is a, a kind of a fun thing that I like to do. Um, quite often you see a um, schematic for a radio or almost anything else that uh, is com composed of uh, block diagrams, uh, functional blocks in the circuit. And um, the idea is if, uh, if you think of each of those functional blocks as something you can build as an, as an independent little module, you can then mix and match these things. For example, if you have a receiver, uh, you might have a module that's a front-end module, front-end amplifier module, and a mixer module, and perhaps an oscillator module, then an IF module, and an audio amp module. Well, if you build things modularly this way and design them properly, uh, you can try other circuits by just popping out one of those modules and popping in another with a little different uh, circuit wrinkle so that you can do uh, comparisons very quickly. And if you come up with a standard set of modules for things, um, you can have kind of a bag of tricks uh, next time you want to build something. Uh, you already know much of the circuitry. You already have most of the circuitry captured that uh, you're going to want to use. Uh, and you can reuse it over and over again, just, just build up another module. Favorite things that way are, as I mentioned, uh, uh, oscillators, uh, VFOs things like that, and audio amps that uh, might not necessarily change much from project to project. So you can just uh, use what they call in the industry design reuse. Uh, and you can, you, as I say, you can compare uh, different ways of approaching it. You might have a integrated circuit uh, audio amp, uh, discrete circuit audio amp, uh, and you can compare them, see which works better, which uh, which might have lower distortion or uh, a lower, lower battery drain for uh, portable applications, very, very handy way of doing things. One of the other things you have to do with uh, Manhattan-style construction is to, um, is to cut the stuff. Um, there are any number of uh, ways of, of cutting things. The um, printed circuit board material itself um, there are various ways uh, with <laughs> varying degrees of success. Um, two of the methods I've used that are handiest are, I got a good pair of tin snips. I hate to mention how many years ago it had to have been in the, um, in the early 70s. I, I bought a good pair of tin snips and uh, I've used them ever since. Good husky pair. Uh, I've used, uh, used them to cut printed circuit board material uh, the glass epoxy stuff uh, since then, and they've never let me down. You can you can come pretty close to size with them, and then you may have to file to fit. Um, other people have had luck with uh, scoring them and breaking them over the edge of the table. Um, 
if you have the money, uh, a really nice way to, to go is to buy a decent shear. Again, uh, harping back to uh, our favorite tool supplier, Harbor Freight, I got a Harbor Freight shear probably 10 years ago when I was doing some of the uh, uh, kitting for NJQRP, and uh, that's very handy. You can do very precision cuts of uh, printed circuit board material, cut it to exactly the size you want. Um, when you're cutting plastic, it depends on the type of plastic you have, um, what technique you have to use. Um, many plastics you can indeed score at and break it or use a very fine saw um, to, uh, to cut the material. Um, and <laughs> I see some other things mentioned. Just to, just to throw in a few things, mint tins are, are a handy package for many small projects. Uh, one of the difficulties of making clean holes in that very thin metal is uh, uh, keeping the material uh, stiff while you're trying to drill the hole. Um, a couple ways that have been used, my favorite way is to make a wooden block that fits inside the mint tin to uh, back up the, the mint tin to have something for the uh, material to work against. Others have uh, frozen water into it and drilled in there. Uh, I generally use a step drill, uh, a nitride uh, um, hardened step drill, uh, with pretty good success with a wooden block. Um, there is a link in the in the uh, references at the end of the uh, end of our material on the whiteboard that uh, has some tips on uh, drilling clean holes from Ken Locasal, who um, who was a uh, very good machinist. I believe he was a He's a retired mechanical engineer. He has some very excellent uh, material in there. Um, other topics are, let me turn it back to George because George is very good at this. Uh, marking front panels for cutting and indeed uh, other topics for uh, front panels. George is much, much more of an artist than I am for this. Uh, take it away, George. All right, Joe, we'll pause real quickly for any questions that you have along the way. Anybody? All right, we've got some good dialogue that's going on in the uh, in the text areas, too. So hopefully you're following that as well. Um, I wish I had more time to have uh, provided some pictures, and I will do this before we actually publish the podcast. Um, uh, with photographs for marking panels and, and cutting panels and I wanted to have a section on making uh, uh, front panel labels. Really not, it's hard to talk about it just in uh, words without photos, but I think you'll get the idea here that, uh, of course, um, making a front, most of us have really had projects where we don't have front, uh, front panel labels at all because you know what the controls are, so what the heck. Or even, uh, even worse, as it were, if you um, take a, a Dymo label maker and you slap a, a cruddy looking label on or you take a marking pen you mark it and it works for a while of course but if you really want to show it off you need to put a little bit of effort into making some nice labels if you do a search on the internet especially in within our qrp ranks and the different uh, uh, yahoo groups and such you'll see some absolutely stunning artwork concerning uh, panels what i do i i, I normally tend to do things as fast as I can, and but, but still have an adequate amount of uh, um, 
kind of quality. A nice technique that I that I follow is to um, make out my panel and PowerPoint or some type of a graphics program, of course, in one-to-one -one size. And then you can uh, essentially create a front sheet, uh, a sheet of paper with the labels on it that would actually be pasted, cut and pasted right to the front panel of your uh, project. And then, of course, you poke through the holes for the controls and put the controls in, and you've got a nice little front label, uh, front panel. You can spiff that up a little bit by putting a piece of acetate over it and kind of gluing it or taping it down judiciously to protect it from fingers and keep moisture away from it and so on. Um, another nice technique is to print right onto the acetate, sort of like the overhead projector uh, slides that you might remember from yesteryear. That material is available, transparency material, for printing on inkjet printers too. And you can uh, actually then attach that to the front panels in the same manner. Lay it out in PowerPoint, print it with the acetate in the uh, in the printer, and then you'll actually uh, uh, have, a, have a nice panel. There's some really fancy and expensive um, material that is acetate with adhesive on the back. So you print it, you put it in your printer, you print your front panel just as I've described, and then you peel, uh, after it's printed, you peel off the backing. Of course, you cut it to the size of your front panel, and then you put it onto the front panel, and it sticks. And it's, it's really, really nice. And it's a tad expensive, though, but I mean, sometimes your projects, I don't know, I have enough projects that I think are worthy enough, and, and um, you know, paying a, a buck for front panel material is probably not, uh, not overly a, a great killer in the scheme of things for, uh, for your projects. Lastly, kind of along the same lines, but a little bit easier to do with common materials, especially if you have a small box like a, like a, a mint tin. So many of us like to put our projects in the, in the Altoids mint tins. <clears throat> so what you could do again is lay out their front panel in the mint tin um, form factor, which is you know roughly like two inches by four inches or something with rounded corners, and you actually create that, uh, that diagram in PowerPoint. Uh, what comes to mind right now, and I'm looking at it right here on my bench, is my ATS-3B transceiver from uh, KD1JV. And uh, he, uh, he and others have templates already on the internet, files that you would be able to print out, that have the labels printed and very nicely styled, and some other graphics on there too, such that you just cut it out, paste it onto the front uh, panel of the uh, front cover of your Altoids tin, and you'd be in business. What you can do to kind of strengthen that a little bit even more is to take a piece of uh, um, either double-sided uh, tape and hold it, hold your, um, your label template to the top of the case that way, or just take a piece of clear packing tape, you know, the, the wide, you know, two or three inch wide stuff, and tape over the... Um, the label that you just created and then fold it under the sides and it makes a really nice protective surface for, you know, a shiny plastic uh, surface for the top of your labels. And, and finally, if you want the deluxe version of, of this for your Altoids tin, what I do is I, again, I print out that label. Um, it's a one-to-one -one size label and I put N2APB uh, transceiver and yada yada, customize it with colors and fancy graphics. And then I cut it out such that it too now is two inches by four inches or whatever. Then I waddle over to um, um, Kinko's best uh, Kinko's 
FedEx Kinkos or Staples or anybody who has a, um, a laminator. And those places have, you know, you can laminate something like your license. You can laminate uh, photographs and things. Well, I laminate my front panel labels. And then after it's laminated with a nice shiny coat of pretty stiff uh, plastic, I cut that out. And then I use double sticky tape to hold that to the surface of my uh, of my project. Works out really fine, uh, really uh, nice and, and durable. So those are just some ideas. We don't have time to get into much more. We wanted to move on here and uh, uh, kind of talk about the layout of some of the breadboards and the prototypes and such. Any questions on the proto on the uh, label section here? Yeah, George. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Um... The method you described was going to produce a pretty nice front panel, but a little easier is to get the Brother P-Touch label maker. And I use this for a lot of my labels around here. It's sort of a successor to the Dymo thing. We're probably familiar with Dymos. But it, it, can produ it prints a nice, a nice uh, label, and it can print on clear tape. So you're able to... Uh, either paint your front panel and then stick over clear tape with black lettering lettering over it. And, uh, you know, it's, it has the problems that you have to get them straight and maybe you wouldn't stick them on exactly straight, but it's way better than Dymo and it's way better than uh, using your uh, ink pen to write the marks on it. So it's And I use it for other things too, like labeling file folders and so forth. So it's another thought. It's not as you know, professional is what you're describing, but it certainly puts labels on your controls. That's a great, uh, great suggestion, Jim. Thanks for making that. Yeah, I do that too myself. But a problem I have is that um, my labels tend to kind of go at angles. I can't always get them to be horizontal, and it sort of looks like I get seasick when I'm looking at my front panel. And but if, I, if, if one is careful, you, you're able to do that. And then another trick on top of this then is to, um, with, the, with the Dymos, you can, or with, with the, uh, the Brother P-Touch, you can then take your panel and spray clear acrylic over the top of everything, which will tend to kind of further adhere the clear labels that you've added to the top as long as it doesn't dissolve the, uh, um, the labels themselves. But if you keep your layers of Krylon spray clear acrylic spray um, kind of thin and uh, you know repeatedly do them thin layers it turns out to be pretty good um, good way to do that something a challenge I guess I have to almost everybody here a question that I have is that often I like black um, cases black enclosures my SDR cube is a good example my uh, the new PSK modem is a good example and it's very difficult to get white letters using any of the white labels, white lettered labels, using any of the techniques that I've described because when a printer prints white, it prints nothing. So if you take a, if you, if you create a PowerPoint slide, for example, and you have a black square and you put a white, you know, um, power, P-O-W-E-R label in there and you, you label that white, when you go to print it out on white paper, it works, it looks great. But if you print that out on um, clear acetate, such, such to use the techniques that I was describing here, the acetate will have uh, no color in the letters P-O-W-E-R, such that whatever the background color of the panel is to which you're attaching the label, the sheet, the color comes through, and if it's a black panel, it's black letters. 
So it's really uh, uh, it's really tough. Joe indicates that there are white clear um, clear backing, but white letters on top of some of the uh, the Dymo or the P Touch, the Brother P Touch, and I think that's correct. And then once again, you run into the problem of need to make sure that your labels are nice and straight. Coming down to the uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one other quick thing. I agree that it's hard to get them straight, but again, it's a matter of no of crooked labels are better than no labels. But uh, just to make a, a brief point, um, there's a back surface to most of my projects too, and I I can slave away on the front, but then when I look at the back, I don't know what anything is anymore. So I think the P touch probably is a good option for the back of the uh, panel to to remember which end is in and which end is out, because you have to label that too, unless you have a much better memory than I do. Oh, no, 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 you're absolutely right. You're talking about the back panel, black, the back panel of, uh, of, a, of a box, a transceiver box, for example. You're absolutely right. Um, did somebody else mention, want to say something? Uh, yeah, uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, to get around your problem of skewed labels, uh, one thing you can do if you're using clear labels with black lettering on them, at least, if you don't have gum on the back of them, is to uh, have a, a, uh, a bottle of clear nail polish. You can just slap some of that on the uh, panel surface, and then, because it's slow drying, you can very neatly poke at your labels until they are straight the way you want them, and then let the, the uh, nail polish go ahead and set up, uh, and then... Uh, Put another coat uh, of nail polish on top of that to finish it off. The other thing that I wanted to mention back when you were uh, talking about cutting board is that if you've ever cut glass, uh, you know that the instructions always say to only make a single uh, draw the glass cutter across the glass one time because you're working with a, a semi-crystalline surface which will use that one line that you make as a, a snap line, whereas if you use several, it turns out to be irregular and will often shatter. Uh, same thing applies when you are cutting acrylic and uh, other uh, kinds of materials like that. Great points, Rick. Thanks a lot. Um, and I just saw that uh, Joe had put a note there about Terry uh, WA0ITP has a great website to check that one out really quickly and making labels so there you go is a is a great example for making panel uh, good good labeled uh, well labeled panels so I think that's probably a good place to really do a lot of good careful work is that shows off your project that's what people see with your project and so on so uh, thanks for for sharing that Joe um, what I want to do or not so I have to get back Okay, we're running short on time, and there are three points that I think I would like to really share. Um, we don't have time to get into all of the points here below, so let me take three that are important to me, Joe, and then maybe you can think of some others uh, that you want to touch on to close off as well. I'm going to talk about the adapter cables. I want to talk about the uh, the DC wiring on the bench. I want to talk about the standoffs, and. Uh, um, and that'll do me. So let me do those three topics, and that'll kind of we can wrap it up. But we want to mention them pretty quickly. Um, standoffs. 
Standoffs are really helpful in project and projects, uh, our breadboard projects, and to keep them off the board. We have a picture there on the website that shows uh, some a bit of the obvious, but if you have a proto board that you're working with, whether it's a copper clad board or in the case that I have shown, it's uh, point to point wiring on the bottom of the board. Um, use uh, four rubber feet to hold the board above the surface of the table. It will protect the wiring a little bit, and of course it'll it, it can help prevent some uh, shorts. The board that I've shown there is uh, the prototype for the sweeper board that we are designing right now that uses the sweeper input card that we talked about about four weeks ago, five weeks ago. And uh, the four little rubber feet kind of hold it up off, uh, off the, the surface of the table. And if you go down a little bit more, you'll see a picture, kind of an end view of circuit boards that are held up by several different kinds of, of uh, standoffs. Um, it happens to be the, the proto, kind of like an open um, uh, prototype uh, setup that I have for the cube boards. Those four, you know, three cube boards, the three circuit boards along the bottom of the board, of the breadboard, are the main cube boards, the control, the DSP, and the I.O. from right to left. And then above that is the, um, is the, uh, uh, the soft rock transceiver that, that I have all. And that, that's what I use for developing the, uh, the software and the hardware components uh, on an ongoing basis. But the thing of note, the side view, you can see that I hold the boards kind of at the necessary height by, I used some pieces of wood that I sawed to the proper length and I screwed into them both from the top and the bottom to hold the circuits, uh, the boards in place. And on a left hand, um, board, which is a smaller I.O. board, the power board. I use some standard, uh, oh, I guess it's about an uh, inch and an eighth, or maybe seven, I'm sorry, three-quarter inch nylon standoffs. I sort of standardize on, I bought a whole bunch of different sized nylon standoffs with 440 threads, and I have a lot of 440 screws of different lengths and so on. And I use that to really hold my projects in place while I'm working on them, so they don't float around, they're somewhat protected, and... Uh, it, it kind of looks nice even afterwards because I can always keep that prototype board, breadboard area and uh, um, arrangement for later use and testing and so on. Um, going down a little bit to the adapter cables, you see um, some photos that are labeled standard test cables to the work area for antenna, DC power, meter, probes, audio cables, and so on. What you see there laying on that piece of paper <clears throat> I see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14 cables. And I'm looking at them right here on my bench. This is kind of like my operating position for the radios and my testing and my, my RF portion of the bench. And I have all of those cables coming right here to my operating position. And I can plug in any one of them to my test circuits um, that are in progress and are um, you know, being studied on the bench here. And it's just really handy to have them all available and all of my projects are terminated in these kinds of cables such that I'm able to plug in anything to anything and actually uh, uh, do what I need to have done. Uh, two different power cables, uh, coaxial power in the upper left and the lower right. Um, <clears throat> and um, you see the antenna cable with the PL259 on there. Of course that's uh, my special antenna feed that goes to the outside so I have a, a live antenna that connects to there. I have a BNC connector that, that kind of goes off to the right, and that goes from my, comes from my signal generator. A um, couple of USB connectors are my, for my audio, and I uh, supply 5 volt to there. And uh, 
the stereo 3.5 millimeter stereo plug is my keyer. So my point is, is that you can, if you kind of standardize your use of the circuits and, and the components that you have uh, in operation there on your bench, you can easily plug them in and, and use them for multiple purposes all the time right there on your bench. And in the photo right below that is uh, the other end of a lot of those cables. So typically I have probes and electronic scopes and um, um, my ICD pod for programming the picks. All of those, of course, are plugging into my USB port. Now, I only have one, ultimately, at the end of the day, for my laptop there. I only got one uh, USB port that uh, I'm able to plug into. So I have each of my different cables labeled, as you might be able to see, ICD2, micro, B-style. Um, and whenever I need to do something, I plug the appropriate cable in below my bench, which is currently at my knee. And then I have the other end of the cable up on top at my at the operating position. I'm able to plug that into the probe, pod, or circuit under test. And it works out just really, really handy. And then below that is my final point here for the evening. That is my box of adapters. I've got a that blue box there with all the different adapters there is on the bench. Joe's seen it a million times. We've reached for it. Chances are, I mean, I've got to adapt from one thing to another. Um, and having these common adapters available within arm's reach and just being able to grab it and use it at a moment's notice is, is kind of invaluable. I've got dummy loads in there. In fact, you might even be able to see there is, um, in the lower half of the box, in the right-hand side of it, there's a PL259 connector with, it looks like, two pennies that are separated by some resistors. I want to give credit to WA2DJN, Dave Ottenberg, who is on this uh, on this podcast here. And uh, some 10 years ago or so, he wrote an article for the QRP Homebrewer magazine, one of the first issues that we had of it, called the Penny Dummy Load, or the, no, the Two Cent Dummy Load. And that is it. That is the prototype of uh, that, it, that he made for me, and I still have it in use today. So whether it's dummy loads adapters, little test cables, um, barrel connectors for connecting two types of BNCs, different kinds of adapters from one type to another. Get some and have them handy. You'll, you'll benefit a lot by them. Okay, um, those are my points. Does anybody have any questions before we turn it over to Joe for his final points on the, uh, on the uh, whiteboard? Does anybody else use the kind of adapters and and cables and standard uh, DC power routing that we've been talking about here for the bench? Does anybody have their own techniques that they follow? Yeah, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, I, I uh, tend to standardize my whole shack on BNC connectors, which I kind of like. So everything connects with BNCs, and then I just have adapters for, like, UHFs to get get into the outside world and as far as well as adapters I just wanted to mention how handy it is to have attenuators in line attenuators I use the BNC style other people use SMAs or whatever but the attenuators I sort of think is honorary uh, connectors yes indeed um, 
Yeah, standardizing on the use of connectors with your projects is very handy, and then having an adapter that can take it to another one, whether it's BNC to SO239 or N to um, whatever style, it's just really handy. Um, others, does, does anybody else have techniques that they follow on their own? Yeah, Alan, go ahead. Yeah, actually, just uh, expanding on the, um, the the box of adapters like you have here, I I had a box you know similar to that, and it, it got pretty deep. And the problem is, you spend five minutes looking for the adapter that you think you have in there. And what I wound up doing to organize them a bit better is I got one of these uh, you know kind of pre-divided boxes, typically used for like fishing lures or crafts or something like that. And it, because it's a grid, kind of like a crossword puzzle grid. You know, I kind of labeled them because there's kind of like you know, N, B, N, C, uh, SMA, PL259, SO239 are kind of the major ones. But then you've got some of the audio connectors. So on the grid, I kind of, uh, you know, put those labels uh, in X and Y so that uh, if I have an adapter that goes from N to SMA, it goes at the intersection of that row and column. And all of the N to SMA connectors, whatever gender they are, go in that little box. And it makes, it makes it really handy, it makes it really fast to kind of go through and find the one that you're looking for. And it also makes it pretty clear which ones you're missing. So uh, anyway, just a, a tip on uh, organizing that stuff. Great idea. I love it. I really love it. You sound like an organized kind of guy. Uh, Nick, you had a question. No, I just was going to pin in there with the fact that the uh, the mullocks from off of the old PC uh, power supplies are real handy for power. They have uh, way more than enough current capability for the uh, the wire. And you get uh, your plus 5, you get your plus 12, you get a minus 12 if you if you want to use it that way. And two ground uh, buses that I really like on the uh, mullox connectors from off of the uh, uh, the PC power supplies. And so when I'm scra scrapping out a PC power supply, I'm, I'm definitely saving those guys. Great idea, but I found, how do you handle the other side, the mating part of the connector? Obviously, the, the connector that's on the plug end is easy to chop off from the from the power supply, but the, the connector that receives it usually is soldered onto the circuit board, the, the motherboard of the computer that was no longer available. Well, for me, I've been able to, well, I maybe I'm just fortunate enough to get out of uh, server power supplies the... Uh, the opposite sides of the pins that I pull out from other cables uh, of the other side of it uh, is you can usually pull them out if you're real careful uh, the pins and then remount them uh, with heat sink or heat shrink uh, if I need to go that other direction. But generally they're mounted uh, 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 a lot of times as they are uh, just pulled off the boards. Okay, no problem at all. I mean, you know, that's a great, uh, great idea. That is a great source of standard connectors that do handle some good power. Um, Howie had mentioned or had had given a question about angle mounting BNC connectors. I didn't talk about it at all, but if you go up to the mounting coax connectors picture, oh, maybe four or five slides uh, up, uh, pictures up, you'll see a close-up view of an aluminum angle bracket um, that I fabricated to serve as a standoff and holder for the BNC connector on that uh, SDR cube breadboard that I built. So I had just taken a, a strip, you know, like maybe a two inch length of uh, aluminum um, 
a, a, a strip of aluminum, uh, two inches by maybe three quarters of an inch, drilled the hole first uh, for the BNC and a couple of holes for the mounting. Then I bent it just using a pair of pliers, or I might have, in this case, used my Harbor Freight brake and shear. Another great investment for the home brewer um, back in the in the back room. But uh, that they're easy to fabricate, and of course, it makes a nice standoff there for the for the BNCs or SO239s or, or what have you. Okay, um, Terry made a great comment about RF step attenuators. I've got two or three here on my bench. I know Joe has some, and and um, I forgot who was speaking. Maybe it was Jim or um, this Ken. I forgot who were uh, mentioning it's great to have handy some inline attenuators uh, for your measurement of signals that are too strong for the equipment that you have to measure them. It's, uh, it's a really handy thing to have there on the bench too. Joe, do you want to kind of make uh, mention of a couple of the other items that are in the outline and then uh, take us home? Certainly, yeah. <laughs> we could talk forever about this. Yeah, just a couple points. Um, one of the things that... Uh, run into when you're interconnecting modules when you've got a product project is uh, doing the interconnection properly um, and if you look at some of George's stuff it looks like my stuff uh, it's almost like a rat's nest um, <clears throat> for prototypes it's not not uh, not a problem but when you're uh, when you want to build something uh, that somebody is going to look at and and judge as as uh, to your Building ability—it's—it's uh, it's nice to uh, have cabling inside whatever uh, enclosure you have or whatever board you have that looks decent. Um, it's a good, always a good idea to try to plan ahead a little bit with this to run the cabling in such a way that uh, it doesn't uh, doesn't get in the way of of any of the uh, modules you're plugging together or get in the way of controls. Leave enough uh, length so that uh, if you're, for example, taking a jack out to replace the jack, that uh, it's long enough so you can do that. And it also helps, helps to neaten it up if you use something like tie wraps or some other means of securing the cable bundles together. One of the things I like to do is to take ribbon cable and to um, where it's a web of wires all parallel and pull the wires cut them to length and strip them so that they're already uh, already contained in place. Uh, Howie, um, you're going to be a little QRM there, pal. I don't know if you got Vox on or what. Anyway, uh, uh, the ribbon cable, you can strip, uh, you pull back the individual wires to the appropriate uh, positions, and they're already self-contained so that you don't have to tie them together. Another thing I like to do for RF, and George has a, a picture of it in what he described as the sweeper, which is a piece of uh, tan vector board there. He uses some uh, Teflon coax. Teflon is very nice for uh, soldering on breadboards. It has the, uh, the nice property that you can solder directly to the shield there and uh, solder that right onto your circuit or wrap a couple turns of wire on. You can solder to it without melding the dielectric. So you can make very short direct uh, connections for RF. Um, I find that I'm able to scrounge in some of the um, everything, anything in the box for 50 cent things at uh, HamFest 
to come up with uh, lengths of Teflon coax that are only maybe a foot or two long that are too short to do much of anything else with. And people just basically discard them and you get them for next to nothing. So uh, for leads, it's very good to, to do it that way. Uh, the other point I want to make, and this will be kind of my wrap up, is um, as you're building a project, um, as George does, he probably does it much more than I, but it's always a good idea to keep notes on what you're doing, to note your successes and failures. And when you fix a problem, you indicate uh, what troubleshooting you did and what actually fixed the problem so that uh, in the future, you'll, you'll have the benefit of that. Um, so that when, when it's all said and done, you know what you've done and you know why you've done it. So for the next project, uh, you're all set. You don't have to uh, relearn. And another very important thing is to take photographs. Digital photographs are, are uh, great these days. You can take them with a decent camera. You can take them with uh, your tablet computer. Take them with a cell phone to uh, self-document as you go along with the project. And just, just keep those photos so that you know what's in your project, you know how it was built, and you know the, uh, the steps you, uh, you went through to, uh, to actually build it and uh, uh, perhaps help yourself in the future with troubleshooting or help uh, someone else in the future. Uh, someone wants to make a comment? Yeah, that's me, Joe. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to make a uh, point out the photograph. There it says we're photographing intermediate progress for documentation, which is your point right now. Um, what I did is I grabbed a, um, a kind of a work in progress version a photo of the, uh, the the RF power cube that uh, is soon to come out for the SDR product line. So what you see there illustrates maybe two or three points that we were really making tonight. One is this is a photograph of an intermediate progress. Um, of the projects just that I can go back before a lot of the other control wires and active components uh, kind of muddies the picture and I can actually see um, what was intended there and, and you would see maybe uh, well you see three relays three SMT relays that I put onto some of the boards we talked about um, the little boards that you break off with the SO16 surface mount pads and I cut them nice and small, and I, after attaching the, the relay to the board, I glued that with super glue um, to the copper substrate, and um, I used some Manhattan pads. Um, you can see it in the left hand, the upper left hand corner where the red LED is. There are some Manhattan pads that uh, the LED fastens to, as well as the resistor there. Some small ones that are created with that Harbor Freight punch that I used. You can see the cable preparation, the, R, uh, the RG174. I was careful, I'm really careful about um, the, protecting the braid, the end braid after it's separated and making sure that none of the little filings ever get a chance to get down into the circuit. So I prepare the ends of my RG174 um, coax uh, pretty carefully and short as needed. Uh, you see the pad, there's an RF, or I'm sorry, an attenuation pad there are three resistors uh, that form an, a 6 dB attenuation pad right in the center of that circuit board. So you can see how it's all kind of Manhattan style using the very techniques that we were talking about tonight and it's documented intermediate. I should have shown an end picture too because it's somewhat more complicated. 
But this really illustrated the point uh, you were making, Joe. Yes, thank you, George. Yeah, I uh, I had seen it and it didn't uh, didn't register. That is a good way to wrap up. Um, there's a lot more that can be said. We've uh, tried here to uh, present a variety of uh, information, some tips, some techniques, and a number of references uh, to give folks uh, some the benefit of uh, many of the things we've done and uh, some of our experiences along the way to try to um, uh, give a, a perhaps a different view of how to go about building things, little projects, some of the pitfalls and uh, some of the successes, things that work for us and uh, some material for uh, you all to, uh, to go and uh, look for more info if you're building a uh, project. Um, Basically, that's it. Uh, thank you all for uh, listening. I hope uh, hope we haven't uh, uh, overstayed our welcome here. Really enjoyed presenting all this material, and uh, uh, I'm sure we'll have another another session on uh, some other uh, uh, construction topics in the future. Back to you, George. Okay, Joe, and thank you everybody for attending. As Joe said as well. And we look forward to seeing you all next week. If you have any comments and questions and suggestions and topics for discussion, um, please indeed uh, share them with us. Um, we went a little bit longer tonight than we normally do. We try to keep it to an hour. If you can't stay with us for an hour or for longer than an hour, just feel free to depart. Um, and you can catch up with the podcast later on if you wish. But we were on a roll. We had a lot of good discussion around the um, Manhattan-style construction techniques, which tends to be kind of the foundation of an awful lot of what we do as homebrewers on the bench. So hopefully you're able to pick up some, tip, uh, some tips and techniques. And if you were too shy to kind of mention it uh, along the way, why don't you write in and tell us what yours are. We'll make sure that we get it onto the web page as well, such that everybody uh, can, can benefit from your knowledge and experience as well. We'll keep it unattributed if you wish, but uh, would certainly love to add your contributions to this uh, this reference that we've got here. 73 all, good night from uh, I'll chat with the designer co-hosts and we'll see you all next week. Please tune in next week for the next session of Chat with the Designers.